Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, the historian Donna Murch will explain why, appearances partly to the contrary, this is actually a rich moment for labor organizing. And then Ben Burgess will talk about why cancel culture is bad. This is a jam-packed show. If I had the time, I'll talk about the surprisingly good thing that's coming out of Joe Biden, but I don't, so I won't. More on that next week. After the defeat of the union organizing drive at the Amazon Center in Bessemer, Alabama, it was easy to fall into pessimism about the state of organized labor. My first guest, Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers, argues the opposite. This is actually a promising time for labor organizing. She speaks from her experience of working with unions at Rutgers, but also from her observation of the increasing importance of workers like nurses and teachers to union militancy. Donna Murch. A lot of us are really demoralized by uh, the union's loss in Bessemer, Alabama. You're not so demoralized. You know, it was a defeat for sure, but uh, you're, you're more encouraged by the uh, the landscape uh, of labor more generally. So cheer us up. <laughs> I was sad about Bessemer, but because I'm involved in the coalition of Rutgers unions and seeing all the different kinds of both labor organizing and labor unrest, it makes me more optimistic because we actually have had some very successful wins during the pandemic. So the first thing is that I think that there's a real structural problem. The mainstream media doesn't cover labor. And when they do decide to cover labor, they always cover it in this do or die way. So they take a single struggle and they make it representative of the whole struggle. Same thing happened with the Nissan workers vote a few years ago. But the problem is, because they're not doing regular labor coverage, it sets up a situation that overhypes one organizing campaign and then erases what's happening in other industries that are covered less. So that's the first thing I would say, is that, to me, the media also plays a role in treating this as a kind of referendum on the labor movement. But there's been a lot of successful organizing during the pandemic. I can talk about the campaign that I'm most involved in, which is public sector higher ed. But of course, we have the Chicago Teachers Union. We had wildcat strikes of delivery workers. 650,000 people lost their jobs in higher education because of the pandemic. And in response to all this pain, there's been a lot of organizing and activism So most recently, GSOC at NYU. If I could talk about Rutgers a little bit, I think it's an example of, one, the importance of public sector unionism, and two, the kinds of struggles that are taking place but aren't being covered in the mainstream. Oh, please do. Rutgers University is the State University of New Jersey. It's 100,000 people total, 50,000 undergraduates, 20,000 graduate students, 30,000 workers, and of those 30,000 two-thirds are union. Rutgers is the size of a medium-sized city. It's also located in New Brunswick, Camden, and Newark, which are majority people of color, in many ways post-industrial cities. And Rutgers is one of the largest employers in New Jersey. So that matters. The way that people think of universities is often as these elite places of ivory towers and elites. But in many communities, they are the primary employer. So Rutgers uh, has a a unionized faculty that includes both tenure track and non-tenure track faculty and graduate students who are all in the same union, and then a sister union with the part-time lecturers, the adjuncts. We have 20 unions total that are a part of Rutgers, and many of us share affiliations either through AAUP American Association of University Professors, or American Federation of Teachers. But those include unions that are non-faculty or grad unions. So the pandemic at Rutgers has been a time of real opportunity. 5% of the workforce was fired, and super brutal austerity was imposed, where the central administration hired a notorious union buster, Jackson Lewis, And they laid off some of the most vulnerable and lowest paid workers, many of them making under $40,000. 
In response to this, the coalition of unions came together where you had faculty unions, nurses, custodial, dining staff, administrators, hospital interns came together in order to protect the most vulnerable. And they started negotiating with management as a unit. And the coalition had existed in the early 2000s, but it was really just a paper tiger. There was people talking about sharing information for contract campaigns. There was also support for student organizations trying to drive down tuition like 10 State. But there really wasn't the coordinated work and operating as a unit. And the sheer pain of the pandemic is what made it possible to turn this into a real force that could be negotiated. The unions all proposed a work share program that would have been funded by the CARES Act in May 2020. WorkShare was the program that the unions all proposed. And the idea is that workers would agree to staged furloughs and would be made whole through New Jersey Unemployment Insurance and the CARES Act. In return, Rutgers had to cease all layoffs. It had to stop the 20% cut to part-time adjuncts. And the school had to provide a graduate extension and funding. Because of the pandemic, many of the grad workers were unable to complete their dissertations or do research. So these were the demands. They were turned down by the administration and the unions continued to organize together. And then just two weeks ago, we had a major victory where the union paused fiscal emergency negotiations. Back in the spring, in order to break open the contracts and to take away raises, Rutgers declared a fiscal emergency. The unions challenged the basis of it. And there was very, this, this is an important point. There was good reason to challenge it. Rutgers had the restoration of its state funding in October 2020. It also had received millions and millions of dollars from the CARES Act. I think its initial allotment was $54 million, and that was followed by $80 million later in the year. And with the saliva test that was developed at Rutgers, there was lots and lots of revenue. Their initial projections of crashing enrollments did not happen. And looking back at the data, in some parts of Rutgers, we actually had increases in enrollment. So we had good reason to challenge this fiscal emergency, which made it possible for them to break open the contracts. Starting early in this year, uh, we paused the fiscal emergency, the arbitration proceedings, and negotiated with the administration as a coalition with four of the original unions participating. And we won major concessions. We won a layoff moratorium until January 1st, 2022, which will make it possible for workers who have been laid off to keep their tuition remission and their health insurance until the period that their contracts will be negotiated. We won the removal of the obstacles to uh, hiring PTLs, who were hired by contract each semester, and we won a graduate extension, which is the largest of its kind in a public university. So I would point to this kind of activism, which hasn't been covered. Our inspiration comes from many of the fights in K through 12 education, the Chicago Teachers Union's victories since 2013 and UTLA, United Teachers, Los Angeles, as well as in more conservative right-to-work states like West Virginia and Oklahoma. So there's actually a lot of vibrancy in labor right now, but it doesn't look like the labor struggles of yore. One of the things that struck me what you were saying, and then you bring up the Chicago Teachers Union, unions have historically been criticized for, and not unjustifiably, for really being very narrow, self-interested bodies. But the kind of in the case of Rutgers, really reaching out to protect the most vulnerable in your group. And then the Chicago Teachers Union, really pushing to uh, appeal to parents with better services, better quality of, of education, but also uh, during the pandemic, making sure the classrooms are safe. This is a kind of broadening of what we think of as traditional labor perspective. It's not the AFL-CIO of George Meany anymore. Exactly. Exactly. The way I understand this in many ways is a repudiation of Cold War bread and butter unionism, in which the most elite workers fight to maximize their own benefits. They also like that famous quote from 
George Meany, who essentially said, why organize new workers? It's the organized fellow that matters. And that choice of words, both the male breadwinner ideal, primarily male workers and disproportionately white, but also only privileging workers within a narrow sector versus trying to grow the labor movement. Whereas what I would say is the United States is undergoing a really profound revitalized labor movement that's centered especially in care professions. So that includes nurses. We've seen the amazing organizing of nurses and how important that's been in healthcare and really to worker militants, teachers unions, and higher education unions. So a lot of it is centered in historic so-called pink collar professions. I think care is a better way to talk about it. Care-based professions, disproportionately female. And also, this is a sector of the economy that's grown as the manufacturing sector has receded. So rather than just telling a story of post-industrial blight and the retreat of the New Deal, this is a story that I would really date to the 1970s, where post-civil rights movement, you saw new groups of workers taking the gains of the civil rights movement and fighting to expand them. I would think that there are some people who are probably rather unreconstructed yet um, who would say, well, you know, universities, that's not real work. Hospitals, nurses, these are not workers as we understand workers. But obviously, the nature of the workforce has changed radically, but also the nature of the leading sectors of the labor movement have changed radically. This is not the UAW representing workers at Ford and Chrysler. The UAW is now heavily involved in universities, too. The personnel have really changed. Um, and just the whole no notion of what organized labor looks like has changed, in fact, if not in wide perception. Yes, exactly. Interestingly enough, I will say much of the credit of the UAW. When I was a graduate student, we organized a graduate student union at Berkeley in 98, and it was a UAW union. So the UAW has been involved in organizing grad workers. And it just makes that point that the union itself recognizes the new fronts of labor struggle. So the question is, why don't we see these people as workers? And I think in order to understand that, you just have to go back to the history of white supremacy. This idea that the vision of what a working class is, that it is predominantly white male workers and other people's labor is naturalized. So I think it's that problem of, once again, being able to integrate race and class and race, gender and class. I also think it's part of the dominant ideology and representation of what work is that doesn't correspond to the total numbers of workers, because it really is the care sectors. In so many cities, it is precisely that what they call Ed's Meds, which is a convergence between universities and higher education and then medical industry. This is what's vitalizing many of the economy, for better or worse, I would say, of many, many cities. So it's a shift in the American economy, but I also think it requires a conceptual shift in which we have to give up these notions about who works and who doesn't. And in a settler colony like the United States built on slavery, not seeing the work of non-white people has a lot to do with our history. You know, for years and years, I fought against the idea of a white working class. And whether it's named, whether it's named or unnamed, it's often the implicit assumption. And if you do that, and if you ignore these whole sectors of workers, then you leave out the most important vanguard of where the labor movement is going now. I mean, there's a discussion about Sarah Nelson of the Flight Attendants Union being the successor to Richard Trumka. And it was, of course, Sarah Nelson that called for the general strike during the federal shutdown. <laughs> She's quite remarkable. She is. And I think, again, the point I was making earlier about not having enough press coverage of labor, that's a story that people in the labor movement know, but they've never really made it into the mainstream. The wake of the threat of the, all the different workers in the airports threatening to shut down all air travel, this is the cause of the ending of the federal shutdown when it did. I'm speaking with the historian Donna Murch. In your Guardian piece, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter protests as also being relevant to uh, this uh, labor upsurge. How, how does that connection work? Well, I think it's relevant in a number of ways. The first thing is that when you think about the Black Lives Matter protests as they came together after 2012, first the killing of Trayvon Martin and the explosion of Ferguson, those were overwhelmingly low-wage workers. I was in Ferguson interviewing people, and the thing I was struck by was how many people were involved in the fight for 15. So a lot of the young organizers, and just like the ordinary people on the ground, 
working class people, and a lot of them were involved in Fight for 15. So that's the first thing. It's almost like a question of, of lens. Seeing it, yes, it was black youth. And, and later, as it expanded, we have kind of a multiracial mobilization. But if we think about it, who's most vulnerable to the police? There's also a class element, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, there's a new generation of labor organizers who take intersectionality as a given, which is the idea that we don't have a single self-definition. So you have the location by race and gender, but also job category. And that's something that we deal with in our union a lot because we have a coalition with many different workers with huge differences in pay and status. So you have a complex story to tell about how you organize people. But this vision of an intersectional unionism that emphasizes the importance about organizing where people are, that recognizes that state violence is an issue for workers, is central, and that also privileges the really the role of, of a kind of labor movement that's increasingly black, brown, and female. So I see this as the antidote to treating white male workers as the assumed worker. This also takes, um, this kind of perspective takes the struggle uh, beyond the workplace. Historically, labor unions have really been very much workplace oriented. And here we are talking about people's communities, their lives, uh, their relationship to state power. I mean, it's a much broader conception of, of labor than we've uh, been historically known. Absolutely. Unions always organized in churches, you know, community groups and ethnic associations. But in this moment where the single largest social movement in American history, in terms of total numbers of people going out onto the street, between 16 and 25 million people and half, nearly half of American counties went out to protest for the Breonna Taylor, George Floyd protests. So it's where the labor movement is intersecting with arguably what has been the most vibrant social movement of the last 10 years. It's not historically unprecedented, but the scale and size of this is historically, I wouldn't say historically unprecedented, but it's important. So bringing those two things together I wanted to emphasize something I mentioned in the very beginning, which is that the Chicago Teachers Union and some of these other unions pioneered this idea of bargaining for the common good, where they're fighting in their contracts, breaking completely with a bread and butter unionism and arguing that in our contracts, we need to think about the common good. So the big victory that they won was after Rahm Emanuel closed down 50 schools in Chicago. It was really just like the scorched earth policy where working class people, middle class people, they lost their entire world. And you have a similar scale of what's happening now in higher education with 650,000 jobs lost, that universities are, and K through 12, they are huge employers. So they have a direct relationship to the community. So taking that relationship that already exists to the community and then getting involved in the central struggles of the community. And I think this matters for a couple of reasons. First, I think this is the most effective strategy I've seen for fighting so-called neoliberalism. The thing that's happening with neoliberalism is that you're seeing the privatization of public goods and you're seeing this increasingly the receding possibility of restoring living standards. And what comes along with that is a lot of anger and resentment. So you see actually a lot of anger towards public sector workers because they're union. Public sector is five times as union as private sector. And this also is an important point for where black workers sit. Most people don't know that the most unionized racial group in the United States are black workers. So 13.9% by unions versus 12% for white workers public sector, which is often overlooked. And I think there are a few reasons for that. The first is that it is blacker and browner than the private sector. There's no question. The reason for that is also that it's less discriminatory. Municipal and state employment was the backbone of the post-war black middle class. So I think there's a racial component and kind of the level of anger at state workers but the other piece, I think, is just this problem of resentment, of feeling that, well, why should we support them to get paid more when they, we already make less than they do? And so bargaining for the common good is a way to undercut resentment and to mobilize 
really people in community to feel as if worker struggles are connected to their struggles apart from job category. So I think it's morally right. I also think it's tactically very important. And the amazing thing about these public sector victories, a lot of it influenced by the organizing of Jane McElvie, who was inspired by the communist labor organizers of the CIO, is that they win super majorities. So when Rutgers had a strike in 2019, we had an 88% strike authorization. For those victories in Chicago and Los Angeles, West Virginia and Oklahoma, they were over 85% strike authorization. So I'd say that it's this radical public sector unionism. And this brings us full circle back to Amazon. This is a different model of organizing. Instead of this secret NLRB vote, this model of organizing fights for supermajorities out in the open. So it's going back actually to a form of communist CIO militants. So that's, that's an alternate trajectory from the bread and butter unionism of the Cold War. Finally, um, you mentioned intersectionality several times, and I think to a lot of people that is uh, you know, a highfalutin word that belongs in the seminar room or in the left bubble. But you're making an argument that it's actually quite practical if you're talking about uh, doing any kind of serious organizing. It's very important. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality, and it's originally in a law review article that was trying to explain the challenges faced by black female plaintiffs in labor discrimination. So it actually has its origins in labor. And the problem is because the way the kind of law that had been codified to redress forms of discrimination focused especially on black men or white women, whereas black women sat at the nexus of two categories. And this had a consequence even for trying to litigate labor discrimination. So that's the first thing. I think people need to go back and actually read their history to know its origins because it, it came out of a labor context. It's not just us taking it and appropriating it. You need it in order to understand things like what people used to call false consciousness. So like I write about California and one of the very definitive moments in the defeat of the left, really the left liberal coalition, was the election of Ronald Reagan over Pat Brown. You had majority white labor movement that voted for Ronald Reagan, who supported a right to work state, who was anti-union. In order to understand why that group of workers did that, you have to look at race. You can't only look at job category or class. So I take that as a given. It's a social understanding that people sit at several different nexus points and to order understand how do you organize them, right? You have to attend to those multiple identities. And in my vision, it's actually used in very practical ways. So in our union, where we have multiple job categories, we increasingly have a multiracial leadership. And we've had to figure out how to negotiate differences of race, gender, job category and status in order to create solidarity. So to ignore those kinds of divisions is really what sets us up for failure in organizing campaigns, even to understand why it's been so hard to organize white workers. You need an intersectional analysis. That was Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. You can find her article on these issues on The Guardian's website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Head Shrinker by Motric, part of a collection issued by Kill Rock Stars to celebrate that label's 30th anniversary. The collection, Stars Rock Kill, consists of covers of some of KRS's greatest hits over those three decades. 
This song was originally done by Quasi. Next, cancel culture, something the right has turned into a cause celeb. But it has its critics on the left, among them Ben Burgess, who's just out with a book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left, published by Zero Books. As you can hear, I'm somewhat skeptical of the argument. If you spend a lot of time on Twitter, you might come to think it's a major problem. But if you don't, you might not even know what it is. A quick definition for those lucky innocents. Cancel culture is an electronically mediated form of ostracism, where people are savaged, with punishments ranging from mean tweets to job loss for saying the wrong thing online. Here's Ben Burgess with more. One of the problems I had reading the book was that um, it seems like it's really oriented towards a lot of people who spend a lot of time online. A lot of what you're criticizing manifests itself mostly there. You know, I go to my North Brooklyn DSA chapter meetings and everyone treats everyone else very civilly. There's none of this nonsense of calling out. Uh, we're all like united on serious political education and political activism and organizing for rent control and Medicare for all at the state level and you know all kinds of things like that. So I don't know. How relevant is what you're criticizing to actual political activity in the real world? Yeah. So I, I think that there's no doubt whatsoever that, uh, that a lot of what I'm talking about is, uh, is at, its, at its worst online. Unfortunately, I don't actually think that it is entirely uh, confined to online. I also don't think that that if it were, you know, that, there would be sort of nothing to see here and uh, and we wouldn't need to uh, to worry about it because unfortunately, a lot of political education, a lot of political interaction, a lot of political organizing uh, happens online. We're all just sort of coming out of a long time with Almost all of it uh, was, of course, uh, because of the uh, the coronavirus. I would also say that when it comes to something like uh, DSA, it's a very decentralized organization. It's a you know, it's a very big tent, which has I think it's it's good sides and it's bad sides. But that also means that there is a bit of uh, of luck of the draw there. And I think that there there are examples. Uh, I believe you know, including some that I talk about in the book where some of these ways of approaching politics that I would argue really show this 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 mindset where you're not very concerned with how anybody outside of your particular political bubble is going to receive what you're doing. It might be at its worst online, but uh, I wish it was confined to that. I'm not convinced that it is. Doesn't online social relationship bring out the worst of people? You're arguing with someone you can't see um, and you have essentially no human relationship with, and it really seems to distill the most toxic aspects of the human personality. Yeah, I certainly don't disagree with that. I think that the stuff is definitely at its worst online. I often think about it. a time I remember last summer, Wendell Potter, uh, who was uh, the uh, former uh, health insurance executive and lobbyist, has dedicated his life to trying to uh, undo the uh, the evil that he did in uh, in that function, and to campaign for uh, for single payer, and I remember uh, last summer seeing him uh, him tweet. It's because people believe the lies that I told back when I was a health insurance executive that there there isn't more awareness of how much good single payer would do in a pandemic. And someone, uh, a writer, nobody you know need to out you know has. Uh, quote tweeted that and said, oh my God, this blanking, you know, piece of blank, you know, uh, actually admitted it. And that got 10,000, 20,000, you know, uh, likes before enough people told him who Wendell Potter was that, uh, that he deleted it. And it's a very small example, uh, but it's one that I think is very telling because it would have taken this person three seconds to find out this information. Literally, all they would have had to do is click on Wendell Potter's uh, name on the tweet, and they would have seen his Twitter bio, where they would have seen these, these organizations with single payer in the name, you know, that uh, that, that, he's the, uh, that he's the head of. But they didn't do it. And to me, that's not just a story about this, this one individual person's lack of conscientiousness. It says something about the way that, uh, that these platforms are designed, uh, because... I think that I think that it, it tells you something about these feedback loops that are uh, that are built into them, right? You know, you get this little endorphin rush from uh, from being the, the first one to cast a stone and getting all of those likes and retweets and you know trending and all of that stuff. And so I think all of the incentives built into that kind of psychological feedback loop really disincentivize taking that 
extra 30 seconds of due diligence to see if your ire is well targeted, there are definitely reasons why the online environment is uh, is particularly bad for bringing out the worst features of the left, brings out everybody else's worst features too, but my concern is about the left. <laughs> yeah, did you ever spend any time in parlor? <laughs> I certainly did not, but you know it is a point I made in a uh, an article that I wrote for uh, for Jacobin uh, last fall called uh, "So You're Still Being Publicly Shamed," which was a sort of five years later retrospective on John Ronson's book "So You're Being Publicly Shamed." And one of the things I pointed out in there is that one of the worst incidents of canceling that uh, Ronson talks about is from from the right. You know, this was a book that was written in 2015. He tells the story in there of this girl Lindsay Stone who uh, worked with an organization called Life that works with uh, adults with learning disabilities. Uh, she and her friend Jamie, who worked there, were by all accounts very popular, very well liked by the, uh, the students as well as the parents, and very good at their jobs. But while they were on their off hours, they'd often hang out and they'd take jokey pictures of each other. I think in one of them, Lindsay is taking a picture of Jamie smoking in front of a non-smoking sign and stuff like that and posting them on Facebook where like 20 people would interact with the photo. And on one of them, they were on a life trip to Washington, D.C. And on their off hours, they're at Arlington National Cemetery. And there was a sign there that said uh, silence and respect. And Jamie took a picture of Lindsay pantomiming like she was she was being really rude and yelling in front of the sign that said silence and respect. Because, like many people, they're not good about the privacy settings of their uh, of their Facebook photos. This somehow got out. It went viral. Uh, there was a Fire Lindsay Stone Facebook group that had 15,000 members. People were saying all kinds of things about how uh, Stone is a you know fat feminist who should go to hell and shouldn't be allowed in the United States. She did ultimately end up getting fired. She had like sleep problems. You know, uh, even when she got a new job, she was constantly worried that people would find out about the uh, the photos. She didn't go out on dates because she figured the guys would Google her. If you're talking about this, this sort of phenomenon of what in 2015 was maybe referred to as, as call-out culture, what in 2020 was, was largely called cancel culture, although I think that the valence of that phrase has shifted a little bit since, uh, since then, it's not particular to the left. I think it's a disease of neoliberalism that impacts the entire political spectrum. It's something that happens because we live in an incredibly atomized society where people often feel most connected to others online. It's something that happens uh, because of these bad incentives that are built into uh, the platforms themselves. Uh, it certainly doesn't help that most Americans are at non-unionized uh, workplaces uh, where if they're doxxed, they have no protection you know, against being fired. I think it is this much more general problem of our kind of late capitalist hellscape. But my particular concern, you know, to the extent that I'm, I'm talking about in this book, is with how it, it interacts with the uh, particular pathologies of the left as they manifest both on and offline. If the right or uh, neoliberal centrists act in really toxic ways that alienate people, then good. Right, you know, I mean, I, I, I want them to be as unappealing as, as at all possible, you know, because I want them to uh, to lose. You know, not that I want them to do things like ruin Lindsey Stone's life. Whereas, uh, to the extent uh, that the uh, that the left acts like this in either the online manifestations, in things that you get, I agree, not usually at your average DSA branch meeting. Uh, you know, certainly not in my experience, but uh, but in uh, but in context. Uh, like the uh, like the DSA National Convention, when you get things like where you live in uh, in Brooklyn, I don't know, you know, maybe not your part of Brooklyn, but I remember seeing uh, last week footage after the Derek Chauvin verdict of uh, of a crowd of people uh, yelling at diners sitting outdoors at a taqueria. Oh yeah, I saw that. I I really wonder what the whole story is behind that. That seems like. Who knows what was well, actually well, going well, on there? I really hope that it's some sort of Cointel Pro thing. You know, you know, this isn't just something that uh, that that like uh, somebody who's acting out of severe, you know, sincere conviction uh, is uh, is doing. That you know, we we haven't gotten to the point where you know we're making Cointel Pro redundant. But in any case, like I'm, I'm concerned about these things because I want the left to appeal to as many people as possible because because I want us to win, and I'm I'm, I'm worried about all the respects in which I think that that's not happening. This brings up another issue. I, you know, the other day I, re I read uh, Wendy Brown's 1999 essay on left melancholy. And one of the things she writes about in that is that the 90s left, the old left, was really distressed by the displacement of the old Marxist narrative, all you know, the class analysis, uh, all the old verities that uh, had been very much a part of the left for decades previous. 
they were then being displaced by a new style of politics would which would get disparaged as cultural politics or identity politics. And the way that um, the rump left dealt with this mourning, this loss, was by lashing out uh, and blaming Jacques Derrida and identity politicians for, for, for their marginalization. And I was like thinking, you know, 20-some years later, 22 years later, that we have a different problem now, that we have some degree of partial success in the left. We're not so marginalized. We are dealing with some very materialist kind of class-oriented politics. Marx is, um, you know, a prominent figure in, in, in left thought now. And there seems to be, though, um, a kind of mourning on a different neighborhood of the left. There, there's a, maybe anarchists and a certain kind of Trotskyists who really resent this success and think that it's far more important to criticize AOC than it is to criticize Mitch McConnell. A lot of the online bitching seems to be of these sorts who really resent these partial successes and almost mourn their marginalization and purity. Yeah, I, I see a lot of that. I definitely think that there is some of that. A lot of people, I think, were much more comfortable in this state of, uh, of marginalization. I think that the eagerness to write off people like AOC is telling what you saw certainly a few months ago with uh, with Force the Vote, which is a sort of perfect example of this kind of hysterical excommunication over extremely trivial differences. I mean, what it, what it boiled down to was a proposed like parliamentary maneuver that whatever you think about whether that would have been a, a good tactic or not is something that it, it, it just seems on the face of it very odd to completely write people off over disagreements about... But, but what if have. you're trying to jack up your audience and your Patreon subscribers, then uh, that becomes more important than the politics. Yeah, that is always a danger. You know, I don't, I don't like to speculate about uh, people's motives, but I mean, it definitely is like a left media ecosystem that really rewards pandering to various things, some of which are, are really bad and really toxic. That if your video is entitled AOC is a net positive, but she's wrong about a couple things, you know, that's not going to get as many uh, as many clicks as, as your video that says, you know, AOC is Nancy Pelosi Jr. and, and I hate her. Uh, <laughs> so that is definitely a problem. Problem. Some of it has to do with the way that the left was really wandering in the desert for, for a very long time. Noam Chomsky is somebody I, I really admire, and I, I have nothing particularly bad to say about him. But what my friend Daniel Bester always points out is that if you, if you read Chomsky, it's not like there's ever a point where he says, okay, if there was a socialist government in power, here's how it would deal with this situation that he's talking about. And that's that's not particularly slam on Chomsky. Uh, it's that he came up at a time when, and you know, most of his formative decades were were a time when I think that the radical left uh, was was so marginal that it, it it might have even felt sort of silly to speculate about that. You know, it's like saying, oh, well, you know, when I become the emperor of the galaxy, here's what I'll do. And, you know, if you look at even the way that people like Bernie Sanders in the United States or Jeremy Corbyn in uh, in the UK, people I think of as like good, solid, honorable left social Democrats spent the vast majority of their political careers as, as, as fairly marginal backbenchers. And certainly any sort of more radical change was was completely off the table for all of that time. Then there might be a couple of reasons why when the door of political possibility does start finally start to open up a crack, then people uh, might still have some bad habits and, and, and might have a, a sort of incredibly counterproductive rea reaction to that, like you're talking about. I think one of those reasons is that if you're just talking, right, if, if basically your political activity consists of writing articles and um, no shade on that, right, it's, it's, it's certainly what mine mostly consists of, then you, you don't actually have to be confronted uh, with the difficulties and ambiguities that are inevitably going to be faced by any version of real world politics. You might just have unreasonable standards, certainly not for criticizing people. Nobody should be immune for, to criticism, but for just writing them off and excommunicating them. And another thing that I, that I think your question kind of hints at, which I think is right, is that there's something very comfortable and very safe uh, about being on the margins. That's a, that, that's a stance that a lot of people on the left are, are very used to and, and maybe even on, on some 
like weird emotional level uh, have kind of built their sense of themselves around that they're going to you know when they see their family on thanksgiving you know they're they're going to be the crazy radical you know who's who's, who's going to get into an argument uh with their uh, their brother-in-law about you know about whether barack obama's you know doing the best job he can or whatever and having to adopt a uh, a different sort of stance uh, where you think harder about what can actually be done in messy real world situations just just goes very badly sometimes. So I think force the vote is one symptom of that, perhaps. I think that another one, uh, not necessarily from the same people, uh, was the uh, the year before when Joe Rogan, who's the most possibly the most popular podcaster in the world, uh, said that he uh, was probably going to uh, to vote for Bernie Sanders. He said in a very Joe Roganish way. You know, he, you know, he sounded sort of stoned. He was like, "Ah, yeah, I'll, I'll probably vote for Bernie." And the Bernie Sanders campaign did the obvious thing and 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 put out a little clip of that. You know, to to trumpet this fact to as many people as possible that this this person with the uh, with one of the world's biggest audiences uh, had had sort of endorsed their candidate. And there were a lot of people who reacted very badly to this, and a lot of that was bad faith actors, stuff being ginned up by supporters of other candidates. But I certainly saw plenty of people with those Democratic Socialist Red Rose emoji in their Twitter handle, and even a couple of people in left media who were sort of jumping on that bandwagon that it's very bad that uh, Bernie accepted and touted uh, the endorsement of this, uh, this extremely problematic uh, person, which I think is really striking in terms of the, the dynamic that you're talking about, because... If there had been some sort of process of negotiation and Bernie had had to give up some sort of policy position in exchange for this endorsement that, oh, I'm, I'm no longer going to advocate funding trans people's you know, uh, health care, sure, I would have understood the outrage. But here, what people are being outraged about is that somebody who has very good takes on some issues, extremely bad takes on others, and you could imagine landing in any number of different directions politically – and has a massive audience of people who aren't super political, uh, it, you know, endorsed you, which if you take it as a given that the point of an election is to get as many people as possible to vote for you, is a very, very strange thing to, uh, to, to be upset about, but one that might indicate some of what you're talking about. I'm speaking with Ben Burgess, author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, just out from Zero Books. This touches on something uh, that you write about in your analysis of cancel culture or call-out culture, whatever you're calling it now. Uh, and you rightly point out that the target is rarely criticized for some specific behavior, but is instead judged to be comprehensively globally terrible. Uh, and it struck me that that was a curious parallel with U.S. law, which, uh, as George Whitman pointed out his, in his book on the American influence on Nazi legal doctrine, one doesn't commit a crime but is essentially a criminal. On this, Hitler and the authors of this three strikes legislation agreed, but it seems like some of our own radical culture is picking up on one of the nastier sides of the American legal tradition. You're just not wrong about something. You're a fundamentally evil person. Yeah, and, and, and there is like a really odd uh, echo of those, those debates about criminal justice reform in these contexts. Like, for example, a much more recent controversy than, than some of the ones we talked about from uh, last month, I believe, is that Teen Vogue, which is as, as funny as it feels to say this out loud, uh, has actually uh, published some really radical socialist stuff in the last uh, last couple of years. So unexpected, but great. But they had uh, hired uh, this this editor, Alexi uh, McCammond, who uh, is, uh, I believe, 27, uh, 28, something like that. And 10 years ago, had tweeted some obnoxious, mildly racist tweets that I, I certainly wouldn't defend. And had since, you know, profusely apologized and all of that. And and this was was brought back up in this context. And there was there was successful pressure for her ultimately, you know, she wasn't fired, but you know, she resigned under pressure, you know, which I often take it, especially in these corporate contexts, is often a a nice way of firing somebody uh, that, you know, you let them resign. Or I think, for example, about uh, Cenk Uger of the Young Turks, uh, who is somebody I don't always agree with. You know, he supported Bernie and all that. So, you know, so he's he's basically good from my perspective, but I think he's much more of a liberal than I would like in, in, in certain respects. But he had even longer ago than that, I think like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe, he was a young conservative and he'd written blog posts where he'd said various obnoxious and stupid things as conservatives are wont to do. This again, this is like 15, 20 years ago. Since then, in the intervening years, he had a politically evolved to the point where he started the Young Turks, which has been on for a very long time. He helped start Justice Democrats, uh, which is 
as responsible as any organization for electing the squad to Congress. Like it seems like once every several years, these uh, these ancient uh, blog posts will resurface, and when they do, people will get mad at them all over again, uh, even though he has profusely apologized and begged for forgiveness for them on many, many occasions over the years. And because of one such controversy, he had to step down from the Justice Democrats, which he was so instrumental in founding uh, because of another one last year. There's some he said, she said about this, but uh, you know what, what happened there. But he went from being a primary candidate who was endorsed by Bernie Sanders and many other people to, um, to being one who was endorsed by no one and whose campaign went nowhere. There are two things I'd, I'd say about this. Um, one of them is that in terms of one of my bigger concerns in the book, which is uh, which is making the left as appealing as at all possible, I think this is a terrible message to send because what are you saying to people that, who currently disagree with us politically? Oh, even if we completely convince you, you change your mind, you come around, you have your road to Damascus moment, you become one of us. We continue to reserve the right to hold against you anything that you you said or wrote, uh, you know, when you disagreed with us until the end of time, anytime that's convenient. I have a hard time imagining anybody getting excited about joining that kind of club. And then the other one, which connects to your your question, is that I, I think there is an interesting kind of performative contradiction here, because surely anybody who identifies with left politics thinks that the United States is 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 kind of drunk on incarceration, that, that we should have a vastly less carceral criminal justice system, thinks, for example, that we should uh, ban the box. Uh, so uh, that, that box on uh, employment uh, applications uh, that asks if, you know, if you've been convicted of a felony so that uh, ex-convicts will be able to get regular gainful non-criminal employment you know, when they get out of prison. There's something very funny going on here in the views of people who, on the one hand, presumably believe that rapists and murderers should get a second chance but who apparently don't believe that people who have a history of bad tweets should get a second chance. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, something that uh, Michael Kinsley said decades ago, that uh, the right is always looking for converts and the left is always looking for heretics. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Finally, um, what to do about this? I mean, I think we probably disagree uh, on the severity of this phenomenon. I think it's more of an online thing that has less of a real-world effect, and we've, we've been over that. But it's still not very pretty, and it's not something to be proud of. That kind of punitive urge, you know, when it comes from the, the side of cops and prosecutors, we're against it. But as you say, when it comes from our side, it's a little too pervasive for, for comfort. You seem to have a great faith in rational argument. I guess that's perhaps a function of your day job in philosophy. And I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of the extent to which people are susceptible to rational argument and fact-checking, the emotional and the fantastic and the ide deeply ideological. These are very, very powerful forces that are not easily dislodged. Some of the, what we're seeing in, in this so-called cancel culture is that kind of instinctive attack mode, which may or may not be susceptible to any kind of, of, of rational pushback. How do you see getting this thing under control and being pushed in a more constructive direction? Yeah, I wish I could disagree with the premise. I really don't, right? I, th I think that rational argument does move some people to a certain extent, and uh, and and one of the things that has has been a major animating current in what I do for you know as long as I've been doing it is 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 trying to uh, to get us to at least be well practiced in using that tool because I think it's a tool that's that that can be useful to us. And it's and it's certainly not you know a terrain that we want to uh, we want to cede to the right, but I mean you're not wrong that there is a limit to its utility that there are all kinds of uh, of other things that uh, that impact uh, people's behavior to the list that you just gave. I would also add this is touchy and I don't want to exaggerate the point, but I think that there is an element to which class background uh, can make a difference here because there are certain forms of professional and you know middle-class sort of uh, acculturation that can play a bad role here. But I'd, I'd, I'd say, I think ultimately a couple things. One of them is that there are some people who, who can be persuaded uh, to, uh, to do better and I would like to try to persuade them if I can. And another thing is that uh, even to the extent that, uh, that that's not possible, even if uh, nobody 
is uh, is convinced that some of these behaviors are, are counterproductive and, and that they should cut them out, which I think is too pessimistic. But even if that even if that were the case, even in that best case scenario, I think that there is some value to people on the left talking about this stuff, if only to send a signal to some of the people that we're trying to appeal to that, look, some of the more toxic or pathological things that happen on the left, there are plenty of people on the left who hated everybody a bit as much as they do, as you do. You don't have to like any of this to join us. And I, I think that that could be a tremendously useful signal to send. Now, ultimately, as far as what anything that either half of that, either convincing people to do better or sending that useful signal to, you know, to people who, who might think, okay, well, even if there's some flavors of the left that I don't like, there's this, there's one that looks appealing to me and that I can find a home in. Those things, of course, are both happening at the retail level. You know that they're 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 things that happen that appeal to various individuals and they're useful. But I think that on a larger scale, right now, I think we can plant a flag for a, a better way of doing politics, and that has value. But I do ultimately think that we might need to wait on larger developments in the uh, in the real world. So despite the fact that some of the cases that we've been talking about happened while Bernie Sanders was running for president, I still think that none of these things that we're talking about were as bad during uh, that time than as they are now. I think that the, the way that the left uh, has been disoriented in the last year uh, has uh, has really made a lot of these things uh, much, much worse in some of the specific... Well, it's not just the left. Everybody's been pretty disoriented over the last year. Yeah, well, fair enough, right? You know, but uh, on the left, since that's what I'm, I'm primarily concerned with, I think that when you have something really big and really promising going on in larger real-world politics, like the Bernie campaign, that exerts a kind of gravitational pull where... At the end of the day, almost anybody who isn't a complete crank, you know, can can sort of see some value in it and is likely to be pulled into its orbit. And hey, some of my best friends are cranks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Uh, you know, the point is just that uh, that when that happens, I think that can usefully check some of this stuff because. Because when people have a sense that something is really at stake in their politics and there are things that, that there are things that can be accomplished, then I think that can help put some of our worst instincts in check. I don't know what that is, but meanwhile, I'm for anything that can help keep us sane until that happens. That was Ben Burgess, author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left, published by Zero Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another song from the Kill Rock Stars anniversary compilation, this from Maita, doing Bag of Hammers, originally by Thou and the Get Down, Stay Down. Till next week, bye. Stay.